So for the last few weeks, um, four weeks to be exact, we've taken a break from our journey through the book of Acts, looking at the first church, the first followers of Jesus, in order to really maybe uh, summarize and synthesize those values that we see in the book of Acts. And, and we've kind of boiled them down to a list of six things that, that we think are especially important. Six things that we hope that everybody who comes in contact with anybody who would call themselves a part of Connection Church would say, okay, this, this seems to be distinct. This seems to be who they are. And we've been walking through some values we think are throughout the scripture that, that we have gleaned from it. So our time has looked a little bit different than it has been. There's, there's less narrative um, there's less storytelling, but instead we wanted to synthesize some information, information, some themes that we see throughout Scripture. And so we began that the most important message that we find in all of the Bible is what we would call the gospel, the good news. There's four books, in fact, that are the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And those books are called the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's simply four different guys who saw what Jesus did, knew what Jesus had accomplished on our behalf, and told the story. And that story was passed on through the first Christians, the first followers of Jesus. And for us, that is the story. It's the most important bit of information. It's the essential message. And if we have an opportunity to talk with anybody about eternal things, about spiritual matters, about religious things, then we want to make sure that the key message of God's love for us, God's patience for us, over and over and over again displayed in the Bible is the good news. And we want to make sure we get that out. In fact, the good news, the Bible tells us, is so good that those of us who have been changed by it, inspired by it, can no longer keep it a secret. It's so good you can't keep it to yourself. It's, it's like the gossip or the thing that happened that you can't not talk about with people, except this is the kind of good news that travels extremely fast. And so the gospel is at the center of everything we do. And so you'll hear these phrases that we use over and over and over again as a constant reminder to us to keep our eye on what God has done for us in Jesus. So we'll say things like gospel-centered or, or is this worship gospel-centered? In fact, at the end of this time that I'm, I'm talking to you, I want you to challenge me and say, was the center of his speech to us the gospel? Did, did the good news of Jesus play out? Was it the root of everything that we say and do? Is it the, it's the thing we sing about. If, if the good news of Jesus isn't what is celebrated and shared in some of the songs that we sing together, then they're a waste of our time, right? We might as well just play ACDC's greatest hits because that would be a lot of fun and really entertaining. But instead, we want the gospel to be the content. If we're going to sit together and, and do something that's really strange in our culture, because I don't know how often you get together with your friends and just sing, um, but if we're going to get together and do something like that that's out of the ordinary, then we want the gospel to be the reason we do it. And we want it to be uh, the thing that ultimately we're, we're a part of a dress rehearsal for for the rest of the week. And when, when you're humming in your head the rest of the week, hopefully you're humming the words of the gospel to yourself in the mirror. Hopefully in the shower, I mean, don't get me wrong, sing, you know, sing the iTunes top three, but somewhere in there, wouldn't it be amazing if the good news of Jesus becomes the thing that we hum and sing the top of our lungs in our car. And it keeps us from road rage, right? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves him. Jesus died for him, right? Get the picture? So the gospel's the center. And because of the center of our, it's because the center of our focus is the gospel, then our purpose becomes our mission, that God has entrusted the good news to people in this earth. Not because we're special. We don't know who Jesus is because we're good or special. We know who Jesus is because God is merciful and he has shown us who Jesus is. And now this good news that's too good to keep a secret is meant to travel to the ends of the earth. And we'll talk specifically about that even here. 
And so our mission is our message. And so we may engage in things like mission projects and mission trips, but as we do so, we want to make sure that our mission is our message. So do we want to drill freshwater wells in Africa so people will have fresh water? Yes. But if we don't give them the living water that is Jesus Christ, then we haven't helped them. Do we want to warm people who are cold and homeless in the winter? Yes, give coats, give blankets, yes. But as one man put it to me, if you don't give them the gospel, then the only warmth you've ensured them is the fire of hell, the emptiness of separation from God. I know those are scary words, but it's it's meant to inspire us that our mission is the message and it's more important and has the power to change lives. Our God saves and we go boldly to people who hate us, who don't like us, who don't want to hear us, and we boldly say our God saves. Our God can make what's broken right again. Our God can make what's dark light again. And that's our mission. And as a result, the things we do from there, we serve faithfully, we, we, we serve selflessly. We, we, instead of self-serving people, we're the kind of people that look for opportunities to love our city and love our community. And then we are generous. We give as a group collectively. We think that, that we as a group can give more generously to the mission and the message spreading around the globe and in our region and our city. If we do so collectively, we can do so better than we can individually. Unless, of course, like if you live in a gated community and you have billions of dollars, that's great. You don't need our help, okay? You can accomplish the mission, give generously. But for the rest of us who aren't in that tax bracket, we want to collectively as a church be generous. Give to the mission. Give to resource the message going around the world. Give to the message being built up and edified amongst us. We're generous people. We hold loosely to what God has given us because we know He can replace it and He owns all things. So we give our time, our energy, our resources, not because we're special, but because God is doing something that has called us into a radical form of generosity. And the next thing I want us to look at is as a result of having the gospel at the center, having the good news of who Jesus is on the tips of our tongues and our mission message, our service and our generosity informed by the gospel, we also see a byproduct, and that is what I would call for our purposes today, that we as a group of people, because of the gospel, will be reflective of our community. We'll be reflective of our community. Because when we have the gospel in common when we have what Jesus has done in common, then we have the greatest thing, the greatest story, the greatest event that's ever taken place in common. And so whatever thing that you think we might have in common, that thing is deficient. It's subservient to this great thing that Jesus has given us in common. And because of that, now we start to have more in common with people that on the surface we might think are very different. In fact, opposite from us. Not because we're special, again, but because the thing that Jesus has done for us is more important. So here's the the thought I want to give you, and I I want to invite you to James chapter 2. We're going to turn to James chapter 2. It'll be a little bit different. And so if you don't have a Bible, you don't have one in your possession, would you do me a favor? Just if you'd raise your hand, my friend Mark will actually pass one out to you and will give you a Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible, just kind of raise your hand and hold it there, and Mark will give you one. And in addition to that, if you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you. Take it with you. You can't steal it. We're giving it to you. Um, Give it to people you know. Um, Put it in people's hands. We believe that God's Word is what protects us and guides us. James chapter 2, and this is 
the book of James, it's, it's written by this guy named James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's, he's writing to a group of people. He's writing to a group of churches, and he's writing to them to encourage them and to challenge them to follow Jesus faithfully. This is a bit different because up to this point, every time we've gotten together for the last six months, we've done what I would say, we've been in a narrative, right? We've been in the story of Acts, telling a story, seeing the lesson, the example that seems to be set, and kind of trying to learn and apply it to our own lives. In fact, uh, the times we've deviated from that, we've been in stories in the Old Testament. And, and so this is a bit different, but these, this isn't a story. Instead, this is an encouraging word to you and to me from this guy named James. And so James was a guy who knew Jesus. He got to walk with Jesus. He, he knew Jesus closely. And so he wanted to share this with us, what it would look like for us to follow Jesus, believe his good news, and live it out on a regular basis. And so this will seem a little different. We're speaking to people who are already Christians. And as I always want to remind you, if you would sit in this room and you would say, man, I'm not a Christian, or I wouldn't call myself a follower of Jesus, that's okay. You're always welcome here. We, we want you to hear what Jesus has done and know why these crazy Jesus people sing what they do and say what they do and live like they do. But this will feel more like kind of sitting and watching some other family conversation. But I want you to hope Hopefully, hold us accountable to those of us who called ourselves followers of Jesus. Are we accountable to this word? And this is the word that James has for us. If we're going to live out the Gospels, this is what he says. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, and that's an all-encompassing term, meaning brothers, sisters, you people. It's like you guys. It doesn't really mean guys, but it means all of you, plural. Y'all, youans, whatever you like. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and then a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the riches, or excuse me, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But, if you show partiality, then you are committing sin. You are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so for those of you who like stories and you're storytellers and you like the stories and the narratives we've been walking through and learning from, um, this will be a little bit more difficult. This is going to be a little bit more systematic. But then again, for those of you, and I see you on a weekly basis, for those of you who are note takers, right, you're, you're diligent note takers, you're going to love this, okay? This is, this, is, this is where we walk through piece by piece. And I think you can see a few things begin to stand out, hopefully that apply to you and to me. And this is maybe the, the, the main thing I want to, to burn into your minds. Diversity is not the goal. Diversity is a common idea that the world is, is striving for. 
public institutions, anything open to has public access, we understand and value diversity, but diversity is not the goal. Community centered around the gospel is the goal. Remember, diversity is not our goal. We are not a group of people who are just trying as hard as we can to get the most diverse group of people in the same room at the same time. Diversity is not the goal. Instead, community is the goal. Key syllables there, unity. Unity in the gospel is the goal. You'll say, well, what's the difference? If a bunch of diverse people get together around the gospel, isn't diversity a byproduct? Well, maybe so. Maybe that is the byproduct, but it isn't ultimately the goal. The thing we see here is that these people are commanded to to stop showing partiality. Apparently, there was a circumstance in which uh, these groups of people seem to see the world like the world sees itself and seem to see people like the world and our culture evaluates people and, and ascribes value to people. And they began to see the surface of things, but we know for the last several weeks, as we've seen it, that our God sees the heart. Our God knows all things. Our God is omniscient. He sees right into your thoughts, your motives. He doesn't only see your actions, and our God doesn't only judge us by the things that we do, but our God sees our motivations, which is incredibly good and also incredibly terrifying. And so if you've ever done something good, but your heart wasn't in it, God knows. If you've ever done something out of obligation and you've given and sacrificed of yourself, but in, in, your, own, in your own heart you held resentment, like, oh, I hate this, I don't want to do this. Well, well, then knowing that your heart was not in it, our God sees this and judges accordingly. Our God sees our hearts, and that's terrifying, but it's also extremely encouraging that our God sees our hearts. He knows your resentment. He knows your frustration. He knows the things you're muttering under your breath, and yet he still desires to love you. He still sends his son to redeem you, to change you, that you might repent and and be more and more like his son. And that's incredibly encouraging. And if you find yourself thinking at any point in the time that I share with you who Jesus was and who he is and what he's accomplished for us, and you find yourself saying, well, Jonathan, you don't know me. You don't know my past. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know what I've done. You're right. But be encouraged. Our God does. And knowing full well the darkness of our own hearts, our tendency to rebel and run away from the presence of God, knowing all that, our God still loved the world so much that he sent his son to die so that if we would receive it, believe it, we would have eternal life in him. That's good news. You're right, I don't know your motives. I don't know what you've done, but God does. And at the same time, it doesn't seem to bother him. It doesn't seem to slow him down. It seems that, in fact, it, it hastens his pace that he is eager to send his son for those of us who have dark and broken hearts. As a result, since God sees all things, then we begin in some small part as we see who Jesus is to see the world like he sees it and to see people like he sees them. And the example here in James chapter 2 is that apparently there's a group of people and as they were looking across the crowd of people who were coming and wanting to hear about who Jesus was, they found themselves giving prominence or special attention to people who looked more affluent looked more wealthy, looked better dressed. Now, we're blessed, okay? You all have a chair, right? There's 
chairs here and there's some empty chairs. We always want to make sure there's empty chairs because every time you see an empty chair, hopefully that reminds you of that person that you want to encourage with the gospel so that they come and they celebrate this good news with us as well. But we have chairs nonetheless. I'm the only one who stands. And it's by choice. I guess it could be cool and sit in a stool, but you know me, I'm ADHD and kind of fidgety. That just wouldn't work. I've got to pace a little bit. I'm standing, but it's because I want to. You all get a chance to sit. But if you notice, it said that they, they took the people, and this is a group of people who probably didn't have access to tons of chairs because if you ever try to build one, it's kind of difficult. And so they gave the chairs, which were reserved as an honorable position. You even know this as a person who's a head of a, com- of a committee or a group is known as the chairman. That is, he, gets, he doesn't get to sit on the bench at, in the ends of the tables. He gets to sit at the point in a chair. And these chairs, apparently, places to sit were reserved for people that they wanted to honor. And it seems that they started to honor, as it says, I'll use these words, people who wore fine clothing, maybe had a gold ring on their finger. But the people who didn't, who people didn't have that honor, it seemed that they said, no, no, you sit here. Or maybe even, if you don't sit at my feet, go stand in the back. And they show partiality, and it apparently is, is such that it, it's hurting or it's, it's, it's causing some people to stumble and it's hurting their ability to see who Jesus is. So that verse 9, James tells them flat out, you're being disobedient. You're meant to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you are showing partiality, then make no mistake about it, you are committing sin. and You're convicted by this royal law and you are transgressors. You see, the good news of Jesus is greater than anything that we can share, talk about, or have in common. And as a result, all of the other things that we have in common begin to be smaller, begin to look less important. In fact, go so far to say that even people who we strongly disagree with, we can love if we have the gospel in common. Even people who live vastly different lives than us, make vastly different decisions than us, ultimately are united in us, not because we like the same things, or we speak the same language, but ultimately because what Jesus has done is so big that you can't keep it a secret. What Jesus has done, that He has died on the cross once for all, that we all might have a new life, a new birth, a new chance to see the world and to see eternity in God's presence, is so great and so big that you can't hoard it to yourself. It's too great. And for you to think that it only is for you, well, then you've missed the point. You obviously think you are God. Jesus wanted to break down those walls. He wanted to do something and change our sense of preference. So much so that Jesus says some crazy things. And our new identity is in Christ. Our new identity, for example, using the words of Jesus, so you're a note taker, we're going to run through a list here. Hopefully that will be uh, hope, something you can read through later and, and remember. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So he's kind of quoting the zeitgeist, right? The, the thought of the day, the truth of the day. This is, this is the prevailing notion of the day. You love the people that are easy to love. You hate the people that are hard to love, right? Political policies are built on this. 
Um, there, there's kind of ingrained in us a sense of we love these people, we don't love these people. And it's, it's, you just basically follow human nature. If you hate that person, great, he's your enemy. Don't love him. But, Jesus says in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. and Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, that's a code word for the most deplorable people in this society, do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles, that is the people who do not even believe in our one God, do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? So Jesus drops this gauntlet, this amazing new idea that we, because we are loved by God, are not only to love the people that it's easy and comfortable to love, but we are to love the people who we would even call our enemy. Now stop for a minute and get the picture. Jesus always puts his money where his mouth is, and this is the cool part. Nobody... Nobody loved his enemy better than Jesus. Nobody. And so when Jesus commands you to love those who are difficult to love, and you find yourself thinking, ah, that's impossible, I can't do it. I want you to look to Jesus, because Jesus, more than anyone else, loved the people who hated him. So much so that his best friends who betrayed him and abandoned him, instead of coming back with revenge, he came back with mercy. And as he was being beaten, as he was stripped naked and being made fun of, as he was flogged, as he was whipped, as he was mocked, instead of taking power to destroy or even mouth off and say something sarcastic, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know anybody. No one's loved their enemy like Jesus has. And so we simply follow his example. There's a new law that God not only shows favor to people who think they deserve it, but instead, God especially shows favor to those who do not. And for those of us who have come to the end of our rope and realized we can't fix this on our own, this thing that's broken inside of us that seems to keep on taking place is outside of our control, try as we might. Our identity is in Christ. So much so that we see this elsewhere in the New Testament. In the book of Galatians, Paul tells this church, Before faith has come, we used to be held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming of faith that has now been revealed. So then the law was our guardian, that is following the rules, being religious. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't the thing that God wanted for us. It was our guardian. It kept us out of trouble, if you did it, until Christ came in order that we might be justified now by faith, not the law. But now that our faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian that is following the rules. For in Christ Jesus, you are now all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and his identity. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female. For you are now all one. What, because you agree with one another? Because you dress the same? Because you talk the same? No, you are now all one because of Christ Jesus. And if you are now Christ's, then you are also Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to God's promise. 
Did you catch that? When we have Jesus in common, we have more in common than anything else. And so as a group of people in your home, in your sphere of influence, and certainly as this thing that we in this room call Connection Church, we desire unity, community around the gospel of Jesus. Now, get, get the picture here. As we saw in the book of Acts, we saw in Acts, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 11, and Acts chapter 13, before we stopped in Acts chapter 15, there are lots of different excuses to disagree. And people, they came from different backgrounds, there were different races. We saw a, a church in Antioch that represented the most diverse church at the particular time. We saw that included, remember Philip, it included people from Ethiopia, people from Asia, people all the way um, who spoke Greek, and people who spoke many different languages. And they were all gathered in this church. And because they were loving one another so much, people started calling them, as a joke, little Christs, Christians. Meant to be a knock as to say, man, these guys are just like Jesus, loving everybody. Do you think it's a coincidence that in that place that represented probably the greatest diversity of any New Testament church, that they started to look the most like Jesus when they loved people who spoke different languages than them and looked completely different? And in this, I think we find our identity in Jesus and we show Jesus rightly to the world. So here's what it looks like, okay? This, this, is, this is what it will look like, all right? We are not here because we all agree. Let me burst your bubble. If you hang around here long enough, we're going to disagree on something. We're going, we're going to miss the mark. We're going to have different political views. Okay, so there's people in this room who watch Fox News. There's people in this room who watch MSNBC, right? All united in Christ. Okay, there's some people in this room who voted Republican, some who voted Democrat. I didn't mean to look at this side and this side as though it was like, don't throw things. That's not, that was, a, that was my fault. They're amongst you, Okay. And they all are united in Christ. All of them. There are Green Bay Packers fans. In here. I know. All of us united to them in Jesus. Crazy, right? I don't know why I keep doing that. That's not fair. They're better than all the teams I like, so. People in this room who drink alcohol. People who do not. All united in Christ coming from different backgrounds. Some of you speak multiple languages. Some of, you, some of you have different skin tones, different hair colors, different eye colors. Some of you dress this way. Some of you dress that way. And isn't it amazing that God has called us to be united in His Son, Jesus Christ, rather than those other things? Because get the picture. If we only hang out with people and like people that are like ourselves, all we are doing is worshiping ourselves. When you spend your time with people who make you feel comfortable, all you're doing is serving yourself and worshiping yourself. When you only find that you surround yourself with people who are like you and agree with you, all you are doing is exalting your views and your way of living. But we now who have been called righteous by God because of Jesus Christ now have a new identity that supersedes all of those things. It's infinitely greater than all of those loyalties so that now, despite our backgrounds, we can say we are one in Jesus Christ. And just maybe people will go, wow, that reminds me of the way Jesus loved people who were different than him. Now remember, unity does not equal uniformity. 
The unity that comes from uniformity, that is everyone being the same, is a false unity. In fact, it's a self-centered kind of unity, and, and it's, it's a blind unity that, that seems to believe that everything is, that is like this is one, but in fact, it ignores that all things are different. True unity comes out of diversity. True unity comes from a group of people or different things being pulled together with a common purpose. Ours is the good news of the gospel and the task that it's given us in Sioux Falls. So here's what Connection Church will look like, okay? Our, con- our church, our group of people will always look like this community because this is the community God has called us to reach with the gospel. Connection Church will look like your neighbors. Do you know why? Because God put you in that neighborhood to love them and share the gospel with them, that they would be transferred, as the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And our church will always look like our neighbors because that's who God has called us to reach. Look, I want to tell your neighbor about Jesus, but here's the problem. God didn't put me in your house. God put you in your house. God put you in your apartment complex. You are there because God has a purpose for you. And that is the community. That is the place that God has called you to love. Do you know how I know that? Because you live there. And I would love, I'll go with you. Look, I, if it's scary, I'll go with you. Let's love the person. Let's invite them over. I'll help you... F- cook food for them, and we'll love them and show hospitality to them, get to know them and enter into their stories so that our stories will intersect. And at some point, we'll realize that there's a reason that we have hope in the world, and we'll give that reason, and we'll never be afraid, and we'll never shy away. We'll never be, uh, we'll never miss an opportunity to give an account for the hope that is within us. And I'll help you do that. I want to go with you to do that. But here's the, in the end result, here's, it's, your, it's your responsibility. And every Sunday, I want to dump everything I can on you. I want to equip you to love our community. Where do you work? You're surrounded by some people? Maybe you're living in a perfect job and you're surrounded by people who are easy to love and they're all just like you. Congratulations. Well done. But the rest of us who have to work with difficult people who are very different than us, isn't that an open invitation to be loyal to something other than those things that divide us? Isn't that an open invitation by God to love those people with a radical kind of selfless love that's bigger than just sharing the same office space? Let me put it in nicer or or in crazier terms that are less nice, right? Is it possible that there's something you might have in common with your coworkers greater than the fact that you all hate your boss? Is it possible? Is it possible that God has called you to be a part of something bigger? 1 John 4, 19 puts it this way. Our new identity in Christ looks like this. There's no fear in love, but instead perfect love casts out fear. Because I know some of you right now, you're thinking, I don't know how to love these people. I'm afraid of what will happen. I may get shot. Yeah, you probably will get shot down, but here's the good news. God's love for us casts out that fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Why? Because Jesus ultimately war the punishment. There's nothing that your neighbor can do to you in rejection that Jesus has not already endured in rejection. And so therefore we love in verse 19. Why? Because he has first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot possibly love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what does love look like and what does hate love look like? Hate look like? You can't love God and hate your brother. We've talked about this uh, several different times. You'll hear this over and over again. How much would you have to hate me if right now you knew I was going to walk into traffic and you 
refuse to tell me. Right? I'm, hey guys, I'm going to go in my life. I'm going to walk in traffic. Right? Hopefully, someone would go, I wish you wouldn't. Right? Please, no, don't. You have kids, at least for them. Right? Hopefully, one of you would go, you don't need to end your life today. So much so that how much would you have to hate me to let me do it? And if you truly loved me, wouldn't you risk doing something radical like, I don't know, tackling me before I got to traffic? Tackling will hurt, but it hurts less than getting hit by a car. And so there's a sense in which you and I have been given the lifeboat in this life. We've been given the good news that Jesus has given us more than the the troubles of this life. He has offered to us a gift of eternal life. How much do we have to hate the people around us to keep it a secret from them? This good news calls us to love them. And we can't knowingly say that we know and love God if ultimately we hate our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our co-workers by not sharing with them the reason that we have hope in this life and the next. Let me kind of wrap up with this idea and we'll skip to Revelation chapter 5 and, and kind of close with the big picture. I'm convinced not only is Connection Church supposed to look like a bunch of different people with different skin color, different eye color, different backgrounds, different preferences, different preferences in music come together. I'm, I'm convinced so much that, that we ultimately will try to shape everything we do around the gospel and we will hold the rest of these things that we have in common very loosely. So there's a lot of different contrasting, you know, different tastes in music in this room, right? A lot of different tastes in music. So we get together and we try to sing different, a variety of hymns with different kinds of lyrics and different kinds of words, ultimately that glorify God. We do it on every Sunday and we try as hard as we can to offend at least everyone. There should be at least one song we sing every Sunday where you go, I don't like that song, Right? Because if that happens, then you can go, well, good. That means someone else in this room probably likes it, okay? And we only use the things we do because we want to be reflective of the community, right? We play guitar and piano because that seems to be what most people play, all right? Um, if, if it becomes really popular in the years to come uh, to play the bagpipe, like if all sorts of people play the bagpipe and that comes the thing in Sioux Falls, then you should expect us to start having a bagpipe to speak this language of the gospel in worship. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but that's why we don't play instruments that haven't been played in hundreds of years, and we're always open to it. And let me just scare you, okay? You know, more than three out of four songs sold on iTunes are R&B and hip-hop. So it's only a matter of time. I may not be around, but just get ready. There's going to be a beatbox, a drum. There's going to be like a, maybe there's an MC, someone scratching a record behind me. I don't even know if that's a thing. I just, I'm from the 80s, so I apologize if that, that, that may not be a thing anymore. But like, if that's what our culture looks like, then if we're going to love our culture with the gospel, then we're going to bend to them and make the gospel palatable, accessible to them, regardless of our own preferences. That's what we'll look like. The gospel will be the center. The message will not change. But we don't want to scare people off because we look like we're from 300 years ago. We want want to love our community well, so much so that we want the gospel to be our loyalty and we want to hold loosely to everything else. And this is why, I, I don't know if this is true, but this is my own particular take on this. There is nothing that I have seen 
in this world that is more dangerous than a group of people who are loyal to something other than the gospel, but they call themselves the church. I've never seen the heartbreak and hurt that comes like it comes from a group of people who have other loyalties than the gospel, but they call themselves the church. Have you seen this? Have you seen someone hurt, destroyed, and not even open to the thought of who God is because somebody at one point had different preferences, but they were more loyal to those than the gospel? And the reason it's so dangerous is it is just like this room, fast forward 10 years. So every day, these kids come into this room, they set up tables, and it's a cafeteria. Now, I don't know what it's like in elementary school, but I know what it's like in high school. Remember that? High school cafeteria is the scariest place on earth. You want to know where loyalties are? Walk into a high school cafeteria. I don't know what table you sat at, but it's brutal. Right? There's that table full of those people, that table full of those people, that table full of those people, that table full of those people. It'll destroy you. You're not on the right table? Woo, it's bad. But now attach the words God to it. Now imagine that we're telling the world that this table is the only table God loves because they look this way and they act this way. There's nothing more devastating than to communicate to this world that the people who are saved by God's grace look and act a certain way, and if you don't, then you're not. But what a refreshing and amazing thing to say that our God saves people from all walks of life. Our God has the power to save angry people, bitter people. Brace yourself. It will hurt when we come in contact with some of these kinds of things and conflict arises amongst us. We're going to have to figure out and and decide right then and there. Are we going to see the thing that causes conflict or will we look past and see a God that saves those people even though they're different? And this is the kind of thing I believe our world needs more than anything else. That our God saves Our God redeems, our God restores, not because we all fit into a clique, not because we sit all at the same table in the cafeteria. I got kicked out of several. I was the floater. But isn't it amazing to say that we're here because Jesus has called us, Jesus has saved us, Jesus has given us a new life and a new identity, and it's so much greater, it's so much more significant, it's longer lasting than any other things that we could have in common. Our preferences change, but our God does not. And may it be the case, let us be the kind of people that always see our loyalty to God and his gospel over the loyalty that the world tries to give us. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. We're human. It feels weird when you're around people who don't agree with you and don't act like you. However, there is a greater joy that comes from knowing that Jesus is our unity. And the culture that we create is not the culture that simply just reflects where we live, but the culture that we create is a byproduct of the gospel being our center of attention. Diversity isn't the goal. Community is the goal. Let us be the kind of people who address the differences this world makes great by making greater the good news of Jesus. Our world needs it.
Um, I'll end with one example, and we'll pray. So a few months ago, um, and this is a recurring theme in our, in our country at the moment. I don't want to make a political statement one way or the other, but the events that took place in Ferguson, Missouri, not too long ago, revealed something about us, doesn't it? We still have deep divides in our country. We still have deep divides as a people. Um, the election that's coming up, um, it reveals we have deep divides as people, don't we? We're deeply divided. What more refreshing thing in a world that is deeply divided can there be than a group of people united in this good news of what Jesus has done, that God saves people and loves people without partiality. He shows favor to us because his son is perfect, not because we are. Let us be a group of people that look like that. And if you're standing here in this room or sitting in this room and you think, well, I don't know if this is really what the church ought to be, I don't know if these guys really do it, then man, be the person. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Be the person that holds us accountable and say, look, that's not what Jesus would do. That is not the kind of love Jesus would have. It'll hurt us. It'll bother me. But man, what a good thing to know that our loyalty is ultimately in the gospel and it's not because we fit in some high school cafeteria table. Forgive me if I still have baggage for high school cafeterias. (laughs) I don't want to impose that upon you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for how good you are. Uh, We thank you for how faithful you are. We thank you for how much you love us. Uh, We thank you for the way that you've saved us. You saved us not because we are good and deserved it, but you saved us because you wanted your love to abound amongst us. So now let that become a a value for us. Let that become a a hallmark that as people come in contact with us, uh, they won't simply see us as a clique, a group of people who look and act the same way and they dress the same way and seem to be the same way. But instead, let us look around. And if we ever find ourselves saying, well, there's not a lot of people like fill in the blank, then we would accept that as your call to take the gospel to those people. That if there's people in our lives around us that are very different from us, but we feel distant from, let us take that as a call to invite them into our homes, to invite them into our lives, to intersect our stories so that ultimately we could love and encourage them. God, even if they're our enemies, even if they persecute us, let us be obedient to the example you have set to love them and to pray for them. Uh, God, if there's uh, a place in our lives where we've, we've maybe had more loyalty toward the physical and, and the things that we can see and touch and feel and benefit from, God, would you begin to help us to confess that, that uh, those loyalties are good, those friendships and those connections are fantastic, they're good, they're gifts from you, but the greater gift would you help us to see are the kinds of connections, the kinds of relationships that we have that cross those boundaries of familiarity. They cross the boundaries of simply having things in common in order to make much of the greater thing that we have in common. That is the good news that God, you have sent your son to die for all of us without partiality. Let that be our heart's cry so that ultimately uh, the thing that we get together is not just a click that dies when our preferences change, but instead that we would call ourselves the church, the byproduct of the gospel that that transforms lives. Help us to not be a devastating and dangerous thing that hurts and harms and ultimately mars your glory because we reflect it poorly. Uh, Forgive us for the ways in which we've made a a, a false witness. We've, We've told the world that you are something that you are not. Help us to now begin to see who you are and reflect that in our spheres of influence, in our families, in our friends, our networks, places where we work and serve. 
and ultimately this city, so that ultimately we would be the group of people so radically loyal to you, saved by you, and transformed by you, that we would be a light set on a hill, and that many, many, many would be saved. So that one day, when the promise you've given us becomes true, that one day we'll be gathered around the throne, worshiping you for eternity, reveling in your glory forever and ever. They truly will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. They'll all be there for your glory and for our joy, for your namesake. And we ask these things. Amen.